Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome to Thread, Season 3, Episode 14. Thread is God's Word, tying together all the pieces of your life as a person in ministry, whether it's informally or as a vocation. This is a gathering place for believers who want to learn from God's Word about how to minister more effectively. In Season 3, we're moving through 2 Corinthians, a book about the ministry. Today's thread covers chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and the topic of how we have become commissioned agents of the reconciliation. Well, as I began this episode, let me give a shout out to Mark and Tabitha from Florida and to the Ishak family who are listening in the Philippines. They're all dear friends of mine and Sherry's. And I want to say thanks for the feedback on the podcast because it helps a lot. I really do appreciate when people reach out and let me know what works and what they might would like more of. Well, this is one of those passages that even after 30 years of uh, preaching God's word, I just feel unworthy to teach it. Uh, It is such a huge passage, such an important uh, passage of scripture and I'm, I'm going to do my very best with it, but it's the clearest explanation of the core doctrine regarding the person and work of Jesus. And here we find it, you know, it's buried halfway into a book about the ministry. But it's because this one truth is the fuel for ministry. It's the lens that helps us short-sighted ones, or I should say me-sighted ones, to see the world and to see our place in it clearly as it truly is. You know, once God revealed this truth to Paul, the persecutor of Christians, it blew his mind wide open. He literally went blind for days, and when he returned to himself, he was totally redirected. Now, I'm not sure if your experience in coming to know Jesus was that dramatic. Mine felt like it was, but it was internal. You know, the reorientation of your life is instant once you're on the inside of grace. Once you become connected soul to soul in communion with the Father. Because then you you love what he loves and you hate what he hates. You know, this is the ordinary born-again experience. It's the opposite of religion. It's an internal connection with God. And it comes first when you go to your death. I mean, the death of you and the death of your dreams to be a little God over a tiny world that you can make all by yourself in your pride. And the Lord leads us to this place and he puts that thing to death. And sometimes, you know, we have to really get in a mess to believe that there's anything wrong with our little dream. But somehow God has to open our mind and open our eyes and let us see it. And he takes us to this death. And then this death leads us to our own inner tomb. But then through the tomb, we find that we emerge, you know, into the resurrection life. And you begin to live God's life With him, instead of living your life on your own power and pushing God away from you all the time, all of a sudden you're on the inside of his life and you're living it. You're living God's life with him. He is your covering, you know, he he shields you. 
He's your source of everything. And you find contentment in submission to him because his love is lavished on you know on you as unworthy as you might feel his love is lavished on you and this love just compels you to live differently and that's where this scripture opens uh, i want to read from verse 14 uh, down to verse 21 for the love of christ compels us because we judge thus if one died for all then all died And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Actually, I'm going to stop with verse 15 and we'll just go uh, verse by verse as we go through this. Look at the, the very beginning of this. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. That that Greek word means basically it leaves me no choice. It's kind of like I was was straining for an example of this. And the best thing I came up with was it's like, you know, those funnels for icing and they're in the hands of a cake decorator and there's all this stuff in there. And then on the one end, you know, they put this metal funnel, this tip on it. And on the other end, they just twist it and they grab it with their fist and they just begin to squeeze. And all the pressure is on that one end. And it forces everything inside to go only one direction. It is left no choice. It has to go to the other end. And it's like that. The love of Christ gives you no choice. You just have one choice. And that choice is to go in the direction that you're being pushed. But you're not being pushed in Christ by threats or by the smashing power that God is certainly capable of. But we are being pushed and pressured and forced into a track, into a direction of a new way of living. That's why this book about the ministry is so important to all disciples. You know, it's not just for people who have a vocational ministry. This, you know, once you get through. Well, here's the deal. Some people spend their whole life trying to become disciples. Well, disciple is like the most basic level of being a Christian. Get, I mean, be a disciple already. Sell out, get in line, follow the Lord. Now, okay, you're a disciple. You're going to keep learning. You're going to keep getting better. You're going to make mistakes. He's going to, st- you know, disciple isn't the word for perfection. It just means I am now a, um, I'm a Padawan learner at the feet of Jesus Christ. Well, that's pretty quick. I can get to that. What you need to do is go to the next, go to the next grade. You know, for Pete's sake, don't stay kindergarten forever. Go to the next grade, and the next grade is ministry. And the love of Christ leaves you no choice. If you really understand it, you you can't just sit and you know sit and be thankful. You got to go somewhere. That love is forcing you into a certain track. It's forcing you in the direction of a sacrificial life. It's forcing you to live the life that Jesus has lived and is still living today. The love of Christ compels us. It leaves us no other choice about how to live. I was just talking to somebody tonight. He's got a perfectly good job. Everything's going well. He could be making even more money. He's doing fine. 
And he said, I, I'm just not happy doing it. You know, what are you happy doing? Ministry. He said, I'm just, I have a, I'm compelled. You know, I want to be reaching out and touching people. I want to do that with more and more and more of my time. Well, that's normal. That's the normal Christian life. The love of Christ compels us. It leaves us no other choice in how to live. Well, what are those changes? You know, what's it, what is this love of Christ changing in us? And Paul mentions right away three drastic changes that take place in us when the love of Christ compels us and pushes us in one direction and forces us into this new track. The first thing he says is that we don't live for ourselves anymore. We stop living for ourselves. He died for all, verse 15, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We stop living for ourselves. And that's the whole battle of whether you're going to accept the Lord or not. It's really a battle about my life versus the life he wants. And you settle it. When you come to Christ and you really know him, you die to that. Now, you may have to revisit it a few times in your life, but... We don't live for ourselves anymore. The love of Christ won't let us live for ourselves. We have to live for him. We're compelled to live for him because of what his love has done for us. Verse 16. And from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him that way no longer. Let me explain that. The second change that Paul says, you remember the first one he says, we don't live for ourselves anymore. The second one is, we don't view people the same way we did before. Now, I don't know how you think about other people, but all of us, you know, that's, that's one of the, the basic parts of being a human. There's the me, and I'm the center of my world, and I, you know, it's my internal monologue that I hear all the time. And it's my eyes I'm looking out. So, you know, I can't be faulted. We can't be faulted for being the center of our experience because it's the only it's the only seat in the house for us. So I look at the world as Chuck looks at the world. And my take on everything is Chuck's take on everything. But Paul says we can't view others outside of us the same way we've always done it. Paul calls it viewing people in the flesh. Viewing people in the flesh. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the point was, before, and Paul's problem was being self-righteous. So he was smugly judgmental. And I guess that is the position most of us take is a position of superiority against other people. I mean, every time you blow the horn at another person or make a comment, I don't know why they do that. You know, and I've done all these things a million times, uh, trying to get better at it. But it's because you feel superior. You know, you don't you don't judge and fault find with other people unless you feel superior to them. That's the the default position that we're all in. And Paul was in that position. He was smugly self self confident, self righteous, judgmental. He saw himself above other people, and he judged people in his mind. And he said, I even did that to Jesus before. I thought, oh, I get him. I understand him. And yet he understood just how wrong he was that way. So Paul said, I'll never, 
I will never see Christ the way I used to see him again. You know, and I will never see people the way I used to see people. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But thirdly, Paul says, and then we engage other people. We begin, we're not living for ourselves. We're not viewing people the way we used to view them. But we are now engaging people. And we engage people on God's behalf according to a new vision of possibility concerning them. Well, what is this possibility? Well, Paul says, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. This is possible for everyone. And so once this, once this happens and this dramatic change takes place, and I don't live for myself anymore, I live for God, and I don't view people the same way, and I now have this vision of possibility. Transformation can happen to anybody. I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this new role that God has given me. And so Paul goes further, verse 18. He says, you know, our minds get unlocked and ignited by this really big truth. The first truth is God causes everything related to transformation. You know, all this, Paul says, is from God. You know, he is, he is causing things to happen. He's causing circumstances and coincidences. And he's got a whole system set up that he's in charge of. And he's causing these things. And he causes them because they are his will. And the thing that he has caused is that we should be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be reconciled. Now, he didn't wait for our permission to reconcile, and he didn't wait for us to see that we even needed to reconcile, and that reconciliation with God alone is the cure for what is wrong with the entire world. He, on his own reconciled us. He reconciled us. Reconcile. What does it mean? It means you had a relationship with someone. You know each other. And you had a you had a real relationship. You can't you can't need to be reconciled with someone you don't even know. And you can't need to be reconciled with someone that you've never been truly a friend with. This is a and I I've had this pain and I thank God I haven't had it very many times. But it's heartbreaking when you are close to somebody. You, you believe them to be family for you. You believe them to be a true friend. And then there is some kind of offense that takes place. And when this thing happens, suddenly one of you changes your mind about the other one. And you don't see each other the same way. And you start to look for evil in one another. Or maybe one of you does something that's just a total, complete betrayal. I have known people have done every evil thing from kidnapping another person to murdering another person to stealing somebody's wife to stealing their money to stealing their family home, the title to it, and and legally doing it. I've known of wives to... Uh, set up circumstances to get their husbands arrested so they could take over their business. I mean, th- the, just horrible things. Um, and that's, that's another part of being in the ministry a long time is you live a hundred lives. I mean, you're on the inside of so many people's stories. So there was a relationship with God. You know, in the garden, it was like a perfect, innocent 
relationship, total trust, no guard, everything as it should be, and no reason at all to not just love and walk together in harmony with God, and yet mankind turned against God. Not just Adam and Eve did. All of us have done this. We break fellowship with him, and we are no longer his friend. We want to use God. We can blame God. We can try to do games with God and, and you know, game God and get stuff from him. But as far as heart-woven together, open trust, it's not there anymore. And God can't take that. He won't take that. And so he has done something that is too big to even comprehend without our permission, without seeing if we even wanted to, to be his friend ever again, to enter his family, even, even if he wanted it. He didn't wait for that. He just did it. He in Christ, let's go to that verse. Verse uh, 18 and 19. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the father has died in Christ and he has reconciled us. To himself, This thing is in the past now. The door is open. He no longer holds, holds us as an enemy. He, he is friends to us. And now it's for us to be friends to him. Uh, and here's the shocking thing. And then having done that, he turns around and gives us his ongoing ministry of reconciliation. And he does this as an ongoing activity. Now, I can't imagine that God turned this over to us. I mean, it's kind of amazing. It's the, it's the most important thing to his heart is that he can be reconciled with as many people as will come to him. And yet he turns it. He's going to keep doing it. But he turns it over to us. Once we've been reconciled, then he turns this ministry to us. And he says, now, here's your new life's mission. You have the ministry of reconciliation to do. And he has given us one particular message to deliver, which he calls in this passage the word of reconciliation or the, the message of reconciliation. Like God has, has a, mm, he dictated something or he handed something to us and he says, you take this message and this is what you say on my behalf to people. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. He's talking about, of course, the cross. And it's really important how you explain the cross. I mean, I have heard so many wacky explanations of the cross. And it's mainly sentimental Christianity, but sometimes it's just too weird. For example... Um, I, I have heard somebody in an altar appeal say, God loves you more than his own son. You know, he had you on one side and his son on another. He sacrificed his son for you. You know, that's just sick. 
that's not what the scripture says happened. God didn't make a choice between, you know, us little cockroaches down here who have betrayed him in every way and a member of the Godhead that he's completely in union and love with and say, yeah, I'd rather have them than you and punish his son. This is something the scripture says it. And I think this one was so powerful. God was in Christ. The Godhead was in Christ. It was the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. God was in Christ. He didn't just take Jesus like a rag doll and sacrifice him. He was in Christ. He was suffering as though as though he raises his hand, seeing our guilt, he raises his hand and says, I'll take responsibility for that. And he he just steps up on the cross. It, it's our cross. It's not his cross. And yet he does it. And this love, this love from Christ, this scripture says, has given us no other choice. Let's go through the life again. He's given us no other choice than to stop living for ourselves and to now live for him and to stop looking at people the way humans do to peg ourselves. You know, who's who's more attractive, them or me? Who's more talented, them or me? You know, am, am I as this as that person is? Stop looking at people to peg yourself. Stop looking at people to give you your validation. Stop looking at people who are above you or have money to curry favor with them. Or stop looking at people that you think are below you to use them. Or stop looking at people who might be useful to you. You know, there's an expression called the institutional use of persons. And that's when I look at people and I say, oh, yeah, that'd be a good music leader. Oh, yeah, that'd be a good team leader. And I stop looking at people as people. And I just start, you know, it's like a talent scout. And I'm not I'm not interested in people anymore as humans. I just want to know what I could do with them, what they could do for me. Paul says, stop looking at people like that. Love compels you. Now, the world does this. This is a normal way for humans to relate to each other. But that's the world way. And Paul says, Christ's love gives us no other choice than to stop doing that. And instead, to look at people like a shepherd looks at sheep. Search for a lost one, a wounded one, a frightened one. Search for one that's out of place. Search. Ask God to give you his eyes and look at people, get past the, the clothes and who's above you and who's below you and just look in their soul. Look through their stuff into their heart. And then, Paul's saying, the Holy Spirit will arrange circumstances and he will schedule and coordinate a series of encounters where you will stand up and act as God's prophetic representative. And you can trust God to deliver his message through you. And then you need to deliver that message with the tone that God himself is taking. The tone is so important. These days, especially, you know, like tone is, I think it's more important than what you say. Because you can say exactly the right thing, the right doctrine, right everything. But if you get the tone wrong, this generation is really sensitive to that. I think rightly so. But I mean, they will completely scratch through this they won't accept it okay well what tone you know because you can say and i've heard people do this uh they're delivering this what sounds like a message of reconciliation in their mind but what comes out of their mouth is kind of like turn or burn you know 
the tone, you got to have, it's not just, well, yeah, well, that tone works. It doesn't matter if it works. Is it God's tone? That's my job. I've got to follow his tone. Okay, what's the tone? And this is, this is amazing to me. It's actually almost scandalous. Verse 20 says, We are to deliver this message of God with the same passion that God himself uses when he delivers this message. Actually, let me just read you J.B. Phillips' version of this, this whole big block. He says, All this is God's doing, for he has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he made us the agents of the reconciliation. I love that. I can imagine that on a business card. God was in Christ, personally reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And he has commissioned us, like an officer, with the message of reconciliation. We are now Christ's ambassadors, as though God were appealing direct to you through us. And as his personal representatives, we say, make peace with God. Uh, So, We are in the role of an ambassador. And that's a really important thing to understand. An ambassador is not free to deliver their own message. You know, if they ask, like, let's say right now, because we have a president that that some people think can really be a great agent of change. And other people think, you know, it's the worst thing that ever happened. And there are all these people in government, especially if they've been there forever. And a lot of them don't want to cooperate. Well, it's not the place of an ambassador. Let's say you're an ambassador to Israel. And under the last administration, you know, your job was to kind of keep your thumb down on Israel and be a little bit rough with them. And, you know, there was a tone taken in the last administration that we have never taken with Israel before. And so now you got a new president. Now, let's say you're with the old president. You believe his way was right. You now have a new president who steps in and he says, OK, go tell Israel. And he gives you the message and he gives it the way he gives the message. It is not your job to go design a policy for Israel. You go say what he said. And you say it the exact way he said it. That's the only way that they will know. Because their relationship is not with the ambassador. Their relationship is with the executive. And that's the deal with us. It's not for me to say, as I did say when I was an 18-year-old and first began my witnessing ministry... Uh, try Jesus. <laughs> Can't believe I said it. I said it to somebody on death row, too. I don't know how they let an 18-year-old into prison to witness. But So I said, try Jesus. Really try him. You'll love, you'll love the Lord. He'll change your life. Just test it. You know, like do it like a trial. Well, I didn't have the authority to say that. And, and I knew I didn't. And as I walked out of jail, I just thought that was so stupid. That is not your job. You do not have a right to say that. I'm an ambassador. My job is to deliver the message that God gave me to deliver. And it's the same message somebody delivered to me one day. Paul says you do this message as though God himself was delivering it. How does God deliver it? And if you look at it carefully, the language says pleading. That's the part I can't get past. Like, wow, this is God. We did all this to him. And look at what he had to go through because of us. Just to reconcile with us. Look at what he's had to go through. And yet, his love is so strong 
that the mighty God on the throne, Paul, you know, he doesn't say God is pleading. He says it's as though God is pleading. It's hard to even bring yourself to imagine the powerful God earnestly looking in the eye of an unrepentant rebel and saying, oh, let's be friends. Forget, forget the past. Walk away from what you've done. Don't miss this chance with me. You know, come back to me. You know, that God would plead with people. Paul says he does. He does. And it's my job to plead, to be God's voice and plead. And we almost never do this, you know. I think it's so wrong to just fire and forget or, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, the, you know, the message, my job is just to say the message and then it's how people take it. That is not what the scripture says. And Paul, Paul comes back to this point many other times. He said, we persuade men. We're in the ministry of persuasion. We have the intent to persuade. So we need to check our tone. And when, when you get a chance to witness to somebody, don't, don't worry about forcing them you know, to get right with God if they don't want to, because in the end, it won't take. But almost none of us are going to go anywhere near that line. We stop 200 yards from any point of pressure. But look, I mean, these people have a problem. They have an eternal problem and they're not dealing with it. And they are they have broken fellowship with the creator of the world. Nothing in their life is ever going to work. And at the end of it, they're going to account for their their life without him. And they're going to be separated from him forever after that. This is a huge problem. And I need to humble myself. And I'm talking to me, too. I mean, I've led a lot of people to the Lord, but I haven't pled. You know, I haven't pleaded with people. And I think I need to do this because I live in a Buddhist country and and the gospel just sort of rolls off a lot of people. there like, you know, water off a duck's back and you say it and it just goes in. They ponder it. It's like an alternate philosophy, you know, but it doesn't go in. But. I think it's because we don't say it with pleading. And there are people that I know, and I love these people, and I can't, I can't bear to think of them even one more day without Christ, but certainly not forever without Christ. Paul says we plead. We plead as though God himself were pleading through us. Be reconciled with God. You know, J.B. Phillips said, make your peace with God. And I think the Good News translation says, Become a friend of God, pleading the ministry of persuasion. And then Paul returns to this very last verse 21, the, the, one of the most beautiful scriptures and one of the most uh, shockingly wonderful scriptures. Verse 21, he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange, the switch that took place on the cross where I become Jesus and Jesus becomes me and I live in that position forever and the righteousness of God covers me forever and everything that I am ashamed about with my life is gone forever because of what happened on the cross and because it is an eternal action because it was God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It is just so powerful. You know what, my friend? 
we have, you and me both, we have more authority than we could ever imagine to do the will of God on earth. And if we will get emotionally tangled up with this appeal that God is making to people, and if we will plead as God himself pleads, we're going to have a harvest and we're going to lead many people to Christ through the earnestness of our appeal, breaking through. Because sometimes, you know, we just stop so quickly and so far while we're still all rational. But, you know, people don't make big decisions in life out of their thoughts. They, they make it when you get through their thinking into their heart and the message takes root inside. And I think we, I think we really need to ponder this. Well, that's all for this episode of Thread. If you're enjoying the show, how about sharing the podcast with your friends? If you'd just do that one thing for me, I would so appreciate it. Use the buttons in the player on your screen. This week, expect God to use you as his commissioned agent of reconciliation. We'll see you next time on Thread.